It is great to be with you this morning. My name is Jason Carver. For those of you who don't know me, I am one of the elders here at Penn Valley Church and have the privilege of serving on the teaching team. And this morning, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Leviticus. Now, I'm going to make a statement, and I'm, I'm telling you this ahead of time as a warning that may come across as, hey, what did he just say? But I want you to at least give me a chance to dig myself out of the hole I may be creating by saying it, okay? So just give me just a minute to do that if you're like, whoa, Leviticus is a strange book. There I said it. Nobody's gotten up. I don't see any stones being cast my way, so that's probably good. What I mean by that is it's difficult in our day and age to maybe understand this book of the Bible. The worship that takes place in it is sort of weird. It, it's in a big outdoor venue, and there's parts of the worship location you can't go into. The sacrifices that are done on a regular basis seem weird. The place is constantly bloody. Can you imagine, you know, last year we had chance to bring Dave on as our custodian, and he's done just such a tremendous job so far um, for us. But can you imagine if the first question we asked him was, hey, how good are you at getting bloodstains out and parts of animals off the floor? right? We'd still be looking for a custodian, right? But that's what's going on in Leviticus. And then there's the laws and the rituals that seem weird. There's certain clothes you can't wear, okay? So no, no, no Lululemon pants for workouts, no uh, shirts with polyester in them when you're working outside to wick off the sweat, no spandex. Uh, maybe there should still be some rules, right? But then there's the laws of what we can eat and what we can't eat. You can't go down to Jesse's to get pork barbecue, but you can have all the wild honey and locusts you like. You can have all the grasshoppers covered in chocolate that you want. It's like, what is going on in this book? And then you get to parts that are even more serious, like, is there a love for capital punishment in the book of Leviticus? Is there a reason that we can understand why if you have a baby boy, you're only unclean for one week, but if you have a baby girl, it's for two weeks? It seems a bit strange in our day and context to read through this book together. Is it any wonder why there's so many of us who start fervently reading through the Bible in a year at the beginning of January and we cruise through Genesis and Exodus? and then we get bogged down in the wilderness of Leviticus. Genesis and Exodus move along well and they keep our attention. We have the creation in the fall. We have Noah in the flood. We have the Tower of Babel. We have Abraham and the promises, Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and it goes on and on. It holds your interest like a great movie or a sporting event. But when you get to Leviticus, things change. It's almost entirely written as law. It's like you're watching your favorite sports team and they're in a back and forth battle for the Super Bowl. And you're hanging on every moment. And then there's a timeout. 
and you're like, you know what, I'm going to go get a snack or I'm going to use the bathroom. And you come back and there's that one family member who's not keen on sports and they have the remote and they've turned it to C-SPAN. And you're watching a debate on the amendments for the Interstate Commerce Act. And you're like, what is going on here? Why do I want to read law? Well, if that's you, if that's your struggle, I want to encourage you to give this book of Leviticus another chance. Don't give up. If you give it a chance and take the time to delve into it, I think what you're going to see is that Leviticus both helps move the section of the Bible it's in along, that's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, but it also happens to move along the overall story of what God is doing to rescue his people. But if we're going to do that, we need to understand Leviticus's context. In other words, we have to ask ourselves, what has happened so far that has impacted the lives of those who received this book initially? What's happened so far is that God made a promise to their ancestor Abraham. And he said, you know what, I'm gonna bless the entire world through you, Abraham, even though he and his wife were old and well past childbearing years. But a promise was made that they would have a child. And from them, God created an entire nation. It was small at first, so small, that the country where they were living, Egypt, abused them. But God dramatically rescues them. And he's guiding them now at this point in Leviticus to the place of a promised land that he made to them. So there's been a promise and there's been a rescue. The law follows from those two. It doesn't precede them. It doesn't supersede them. It doesn't turn that promise and that rescue off. So imagine with me for a moment what it must have been like for the Israelites in this day. You've watched God usher you out of slavery by bringing a set of plagues including one that took down the ruler of Egypt's home. You've watched God as you've come up to a river that you cannot possibly make it across with an enemy bearing down on you, part, so that you can cross like it's dry land. You've watched as the thunder and the lightning have surrounded the Lord. Now, he's told you that you're going to be a nation that's going to show every other nation what he's like. How do you think you would be feeling if you were an Israelite? Would you be like, oh, I got this, this ain't no big thing? No, you would probably be like Isaiah when he goes into the throne room of God. Or like Peter when he's on the boat and Jesus says, cast your nets on the other side and this hall of fish comes in that cannot be explained any other way other than it was miraculous. And what do both men do? They fall down, God, I can't stand in your presence. You are holy and I am sinful. And that's where the good news of Leviticus comes in because it provides a resolution to that chasm, at least in a temporary sense. So let's do a quick recap as how we got here today and then let's look at what the heart of the book is, because that's where we'll be spending most of our time today. So here's an outline of Leviticus. 
Uh, oh, that did not come out as well as I was hoping. Um, <laughs> so basically, Pastor Adam brought up to us in the very first message that this book is written in a little bit of a different way than what we're used to. So on the very beginning and very end, we're seeing the rituals, the sacrifices and the feasts. In the middle, we're seeing at the beginning and at the end, we're seeing the priests, their ordinations and their qualifications. And then we're looking at the idea of purity. We see the idea of ritual purity, the things they had to be cleansed from, touching dead things and blood and other bodily fluids. And then we see moral purity, the call to sexual ethics, as well as caring for the poor and doing justice. And then all of those lead to today, the day that we're going to be looking at together in this book, the day of atonement. And so I want to encourage you to turn to Leviticus chapter 16 and 17. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to ask God to bless this time. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have kept this book for our benefit. And though it is strange to us in our day and time, and though we don't understand every facet of it, and though it's a challenge to read through God, it has benefit for us today. Would you, Lord Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to receive what your word has for us today as you take it and work in our lives wherever we are at today, I pray in your name. Amen. So today we're going to look at the literal center of the book, not just where it's located within the book of Leviticus, but the heart of what Moses is going after. And as we do so, I want to encourage you. I want you to look for three Ps as we read through this. Look for the priests, and specifically Aaron. Look for the place, which is the tent of meeting. And look for the people, the Israelites. Because we're going to see from different vantage points with each of them, kind of a singular message, I hope, throughout the day. And as we do that, Let's take a look and notice four things that are greater than we think, and we're going to get to them in a moment. We know this holiday as Yom Kippur. What it literally means is the covering, and we're going to see why that is in just a moment. It's the holiest day on the Israelite calendar. And again, it has value for us. So here's the four things let's look at together. Let's notice. God's holiness is greater than we think. Our sinfulness is greater than we think. The cost of restoring relationship with God is greater than we think. And God's mercy and grace are greater than we think. Our ho his holiness, our sinfulness, the cost of restoring us, and his mercy and grace are all greater than what we think oftentimes. So let's get started. God's holiness is greater than we think. Notice how the chapter begins here in Leviticus 16. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two of the sons of Aaron. So immediately Moses is connecting back now to an event that's already occurred and it happened in chapter 10 of Leviticus. When two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took his censer and they went into a place they shouldn't have been and they offered a sacrifice they shouldn't have offered 
The, the, the scripture says in chapter 10 that it was unauthorized or a strange fire. Now, we don't know what the details are. We don't exactly know what made it strange or necessarily unauthorized. But what we do know without a shadow of doubt is what happens to the two of them when they do this. They are consumed by a fire that comes out and they are instantly dead. And again, we're left with an image in a book like, why would God do this? But listen, it's not just this amazing thing that's occurred where they've been taken out, but it's God's response afterwards as he speaks to Moses and to Aaron that is really, uh, it really is unbelievable. Because what God says to them, and he speaks to Aaron through Moses, it says in chapter 10, among those who are near me. Now listen, this is Aaron. His sons just died. He says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. You can put in there, I will be holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So imagine that you just had a child who died, and actually in this case, two of them. And God's response is, you know what? I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be sanctified among those who are close to me. And I'm going to be glorified among all the people. God is laying out here, and it sounds strange and it almost sounds harsh, but he's being clear about his holiness. And he's wanting Moses and Aaron and the people to understand how important this is. So he comes and now he says in chapter 16 as we go along, tell your brother Aaron not to come in any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. He says, remember his sons, tell him, do not approach me that same way. Do not think you can just come in to this place, but I will tell you how he should come in. And so God begins to outline what it will look like. He says, verse 3, But in the way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So here we're going to see some sacrifices. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have a linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in pure water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats. But it says, notice here, what's required for Aaron because of God's holiness to be, to be able to enter on one day a year, just one day, not every day, not every week, not every month, one day, what it takes to enter the holiest place in the encampment. One, it requires sacrifices. Right at the very beginning, verse 3, and then verses 5 through 6, and then later on in the passage in verses 11 to 19 and 33 to 34, we're going to see multiple sacrifices. But the very first one that is made isn't for the people, but for Aaron himself. 
the high priest has to sacrifice for himself and his family in order to deal with his own sins before he is permitted to enter the most holy place and make atonement or covering for the people's sin. But it not only requires sacrifice, it requires humility. Verse 4, and then later on again in verse 32, it'll come back up, what the, priest is, uh, what the high priest is to wear. And if you notice, what does it say? He's supposed to wear this linen outfit. So basically, he's wrapping a bedsheet around himself to go in. Now, if you remember back to the book of Exodus and earlier on in Leviticus in chapter 8, it talks about the high priestly garments. And what were they? They were this splendorous color, things that were expensive and that nobody had. They had tassels and they were engraved and he had this breastplate and on the breastplate were the 12 stones, these precious gems that represented each of the tribes of Israel. And so he was decked out to the nines. And yet, on the holiest day of the year, the day that is most significant for the people of Israel, where he would be front and center, the entire nation watching him, knowing what he's doing, he's wearing a simple white linen outfit. He was dressed like a servant. He had been stripped of the honor for that day. After all, you can't wear a kingly outfit when you're going in to see the king of kings, can you? No. Aaron had to come humbly. So he had to come with sacrifice. He had to come with humility. He had to come clean. It says that the high priest could only put on these garments after he was ceremonially clean. He had already spent, now listen, he had already spent an entire week by himself, separated out, so that he wouldn't come in contact with anything else that was unclean. He was serious as to what he needed to do. So he had to make sure he wasn't accidentally coming across a dead animal or touching blood or other fluids or fungus. So he was stored away for a week. And now is the big day. And one of the first things he has to do is take a bath. He has to be clean. It's an outward symbol that in order to come into God's presence, you can't have any stains, you can't have any dirt, you can't have any filth, you can't have any odors. You have to be clean. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, is that in order to go into the Holy of Holies on this one day a year, you have to obscure your vision of God's presence. And we see that where it says that he is to take a scepter and he is to fill it with hot coals and he is to burn incense within the Holy of Holies so that there's this smoke that fills the room he cannot even look at the Ark of the Covenant that represents God. It's not God, it represents God, but even that is too holy for him to gaze on. 
And if he doesn't do all of these things, he will die. Why? Because God's holiness is greater than we think. Secondly, our sinfulness is greater than we think. So think for a moment, I said, about the three Ps, the priest, the place, which is the the tent of the meeting, and the people. Because here's where it's going to take center stage. And let's notice here that there are three things, three words that begin with the letter S that are important. One, we've already touched on, the sacrifices. This day of atonement is perhaps the bloodiest day other than Passover. Five animals would be involved, four of which would die. I mentioned earlier in chapter 16, and really the book of Leviticus itself is set around the priest, the place of worship, and the people. And as it unfolds, we're going to see how all three of them are involved. Because the Day of Atonement made clear that everything and everyone in the camp was tainted because of sin. The high priest had to make a sacrifice for himself and his family, as we talked about. This is the very person who's responsible for making God known to the people and for interceding on the people's behalf to God. And he's a sinner just like everybody else in the camp. But it wasn't only that the high priest needed these atoning sacrifices. It wasn't just him. It was the place itself because he's going to take the blood and he's going to apply it to the mercy seat and to the tent and to the altar. Because the very place where God's people came to worship him, that he set in the center of their life, was tainted by their sin. The most holy place, the holy place, the tent, all needed to be cleansed. The corruption that sin brought about affected everything. So there's these two goats, one lives and one dies. One gets sent off and one gets slaughtered. We're going to get to the one who lives in a moment. He was the lucky one, apparently. But notice in verse 24, after the second goat is let go in the wilderness, the high priest is going to make yet another sacrifice. And he shall bathe his body in the water, goes through this again, and he shall make atonement for himself and for the people. So it's as though, listen, he's gone through the sacrifice already, he's made multiple ones, and now, after we've sent the goat away with the sins of the people on it, we're going to do one more sacrifice. Because our sinfulness is greater than we think. The sacrifices were front and center, pointing out just how pervasive the people's sin was and just how much it affected their entire life, both their relationships with each other and their relationships with Yahweh. 
So we have the sacrifices. Secondly, we have the scapegoat. There were two goats that were presented, verses 7 through 10 tell us. One, it says, is for the Lord, and one is for Azazel. And we'll get to that in a moment. In verses 11 through 19, which we just looked at, we see that one of the goats is sacrificed, and its blood is sprinkled on the tent. It's on the most holy place. It's on the altar to cleanse it from the sin of the people. And then after that, Aaron appears with the scapegoat in verse 20. Now, as we look at what happens to the scapegoat, let's deal with just a moment with this word Azazel. Because depending what version of the Bible you have, it doesn't get translated. And that's because it's hard to translate, to know exactly for sure what it means. Does it mean the place they're going to send the goat? Does it mean, as we'll see in chapter 17, when you read in there, that God says you are no longer to do any offerings to the goat gods who all the other people around you utilize? Is this like saying, you know what, we're going to send this sin back to where it belongs, to the very one who brought sin into this world, to Satan himself? Or, as kind of the traditional meaning, is it simply just a combination of two words, A's and Hazel. A's meaning goat, and Hazel meaning gone on its way, the goat that has gone on its way. Where wherever you land, this is probably the most poignant part of the day's festivities. It's also probably the longest part, as we'll see in a moment. Because on this goat, look what it says, on this goat, the high priest will lay his hands and confess all of the sins of Israel. He puts his hands on, and as hours go by, he is confessing all that the people, including himself, have done and how it has separated them from God, how it has prevented them from coming into his presence. And you thought my sermon was long. Imagine being there that day. What time is it? No, it was because sin was so prevalent. Now, think for a moment how difficult it is. Forget about admitting our sins. Think about just how difficult it is to admit when we make a simple mistake sometimes. And then magnify that for when we sin. Right? It's difficult to admit to God when we've messed up, it's difficult to acknowledge it to others. We like to keep it under wraps. We like to make excuses. We want to move on from it quickly. Now imagine that on this day from up front here, I begin to go through all of your sins. And they're laid open. Now, I don't mean that I would specifically name you and give every one of the sins you committed for the year. But what's happening is the high priest is well aware what God's people have done and what they haven't done, the good things they should have done but didn't. And he realizes that this has put a chasm between them and God and that God has made this day 
to deal with that. So we can't just run away from how uncomfortable it is because it's necessary. Now, some of you have probably been following over the last few weeks that there was a revival that happened down in Kentucky at Asbury University. And I know for a fact in talking to some of you that you have been praying fervently for our nation, for its leaders, for its people, and for revival to happen. Historically, when revival has occurred, and it was the case with Asbury as well, it began with God's people addressing their own sin. That's what's happening on the Day of Atonement. People are gathered together and they're hearing their sins voiced out loud. Not just overt sins, but ones they may not even have thought about. And not just sins of omission, but sins of, uh, sins of commission, but of omission. Things they should have done that they didn't do. And all this was designed to show them how holy God is and how sinful they are. And to call them back to the God who rescued them, who had already made promises to them, who had continually shown his love to them. Dealing with sin is painful, just like having surgery. But I'll tell you what, if the doctor tells you you've got appendicitis and your appendix is going to burst, but he can save your life, are you going to be like, yeah, let me think about it. No, it's like, roll me in, let's go. And that's what this was meant, to grab the attention of the people, to say, yes, you are sinful. And yes, God is holy, but there's some good news that is coming. And so Aaron would place his hands on the, goats and, on the goat, and when he was finished, there would be another person who would lead that goat out. And he would go through the camp, pass all the tribes, and he would go out through the tent, uh, out through the entrance to the camp. And he would keep going and going and going until he was seen no more. Imagine watching that, that day. It was like an early visual representation of what the psalmist would say in Psalm 103:12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. That's what he's doing for them that day because their sins are greater than they think. So there were sacrifices and there were the scapegoats and this last part of this is very short. There was solemn reflection. Notice it says here twice in chapter 16, you shall afflict yourselves. Now, we think of affliction and we probably think of like bodily harm of some sort. That's not what Moses is going after. That's not what God is instructing. What he is saying is, fast and solemnly reflect on the meaning of this day and the cost of the covering that I am providing to you. Come with the right attitude. Take your sins seriously. Understand why it is that every year I put this on your calendar and consider the effects your sin have had. This wasn't an event where you quickly move past your sin to get to the celebration because our sinfulness is greater than we think. 
So the last two things we're going to notice are very short. The cost of restoring relationship with God is greater than we think. From the time sin entered the world in Genesis 3, sin caused death for those God had made in his image. And it was only through the death of another that a covering could be made. So think what happens, right? Adam and Eve sow the fig leaves. What does God do? He slaughters an animal to provide them with a covering. The animals that they had lived in harmony with, they had to watch at least one of them die to cover them. Because the price is high. The price of dealing with sin is high. This truth was on display for the ancient Israelites all throughout the year as evidence of Pastor Adam's previous messages on chapter 1 through 7. But it was most especially on display on the Day of Atonement. A bloody day that vividly showed the Israelites the cost that was required to deal with their sin. Not only did the bull, the rams, and the goat have their throats slit, but the blood covered the mercy seat, the altar, the veil, the entire tent of the meeting. Everywhere you would have looked, there would have been blood. And this is something that's hard to deal with in our day and age. Why is this so important? Isn't this just a little bit morbid? God's going to give us an answer through Moses in the very next chapter, chapter 17. And we're not going to touch a lot on chapter 17 today due to time. But I want to look at this one verse. Because in it, God is going to tell us why blood is required. Now, it looks like on the surface of chapter 17 that it's really just some additional rules about the right way to make sacrifices and avoiding eating food that has the blood in it. So if you like rare hamburgers, it's a no-go. All right? And that's what it would appear like on the surface. But look at verse 11. God says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement, to give a covering for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Why is shedding of someone else's blood? Why is the improper sacrifices of an animal? Why is eating blood so serious in this point, at this point? Because God says blood represents life. Atonement requires blood because the blood represents life and therefore blood is the only, it's not just A, it is the only ransom that's appropriate for someone else's life. The life of a substitute is given up in death so that the one who the sacrifice is for may experience life because the cost of reestablishing relationship with God is greater than we think. Lastly, God's mercy and grace is greater than we think. See, we can only accept this last point if we wrestle with the first three. The ones that say God's holiness is greater than we think, our sinfulness is greater than we think, the costliness of restoration is greater than we think. We can only accept that God's grace and mercy are greater than we think if we understand those first three. And it's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 
1, 15 through 17. He says, you know, at the end of my life, here's what I understand. God came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This God who is holy and great and invisible, the only wise God. See, he got it. He understood God's holiness. He understood his sinfulness. And he understood the cost that Christ bore to make it possible. So let's go back to those last two goats. The one represents forgiveness, the one who has its throat slit. That blood is shed for our forgiveness. But the second goat represents forgetfulness. You see, the penalty is paid and the punishment is dealt with. And God says, I'm not going to bring this back up. You're going to watch that goat and he's going to leave. And just like he's leaving, he's taking your sins. That's how I'm viewing it, that your sins are being taken with him. It's the culmination. It's the part that we get to celebrate. For on this day, God says in chapter 16, verse 30, on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. All your sins. All your sins. So as we close, I hope it's okay. I've done this uh, once before with my oldest son, Silas. I'm going to ask him to come up. And what we want to do for you is just use a little bit of holy imagination about what that day was like to help see how it points us to today. Man, you know what, son? I cannot believe today is the Day of Atonement. It is so awesome to celebrate this with you. I, Aaron's already in the tent. He's already making the sacrifice. But do you know why he's making that sacrifice? It's for himself, because he's a sinner too. And so he has to sacrifice, son, just so that for this one day, he can enter the Holy of Holies. On this one day, he can go into the place that has God's presence. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, Dad, but wouldn't it be great if there's a high priest who didn't need to make a sacrifice for himself in order to enter the most holy place? Well, son, I have to give you credit. Your imagination is great, but who would be able to do that? We know that only God is perfect, and we're sinners. That's why we need this day. I know, Dad. But wouldn't it be fantastic if there was someone like that? Someone who could not only enter the most holy place, but could open it up for us to enter so that we could be in God's presence. You know, sort of like Adam and Eve, and how you and Mom told us that God walked with them in the garden. You know, that would be awesome, son, but we've got to focus on today. Aaron's already making the second sacrifice so that he can cleanse the mercy seat, the tent, and the altar. My sin and your sins, they've made even the place we worship tainted. It's so amazing that God would be this merciful to us to give us this day. But wouldn't it be awesome, Dad, if there's a sacrifice that not 
only took the penalty of our sins, but completely broke its power in our lives. It sure would be, but we know that bulls and goats can't do that, son. Wait, look, Aaron, he's coming out. Wow, look how bloody he is. Oh, he's putting his hands on the goat, son. This is where he goes through all of our sins and puts them on that goat before he leads them out. I, I know this takes a while, but this is so important. Dad, it sure would be terrific if there's a perfect lamb who could literally separate our sins as far as the space in between the most holy place and the desert where this goat is going to be sent and draw us close to God, wouldn't it? What's that? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, absolutely it would be. But, but look, there's the scapegoat, son. He's passing through the tribes and he's on his way out of the camp. I can barely see him. He's going, he's going, he's gone. Oh, what an amazing day it was, wasn't it? It's tough to be reminded of how sinful we are, especially when compared to God and his holiness and perfection. And, and it's tough to watch those animals die for something they didn't do. But God is so merciful to us year after year. He gives us this day to deal with our sins. Isn't it incredible, son? He is, Dad, but I have one more question. Oh, boy. And what is that? Wouldn't it be amazing if we didn't have to come back here next year because God made a way to deal with our sins once and for all? You know, son, I think next year you should probably sit with Mom. The Day of Atonement was indeed a special and wonderful day for the Israelites, as God made a way to cover their sins. But the story of redemption did not end there. Maybe you have something in your home that you've covered up. Maybe it's a stain on a floor that you threw a rug over. Maybe it's a hole in a wall that you moved a piece of furniture in front of. Maybe it's a messy desk that you put the roll top down on. Maybe it could be 101 things. But covering isn't the same as cleaning. It's not the same as repairing. It's not the same as changing, is it? I love what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, and here's how we tie into the Day of Atonement. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. He made a way temporarily, but that wasn't the permanent way. That was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So we know the end of the story, right? We know that Jesus is the greater high priest. We know that he's the greater sacrifice. We know he's the greater scapegoat. And that's what we saw when we looked through the book of Hebrews back in the fall.
but it's more than that. You see, because Jesus doesn't just cover our sins. He doesn't just deal with that part, because year after year, that would leave us in the same spot of needing for it to be done over and over and over again. No, what Jesus does, as Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 5.21, is he gives us his righteousness. And that is great news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you just like the Israelites, Lord. We're our sinful people and you're a holy God. Father, we fail daily. There are things we do that we know we shouldn't do. There are things like pornography and greed and anger and lust. But God, there's also things we should do that we don't do. Caring for others, pointing others to Jesus, living a life that's distinct from the world around us. God, thank you that previously you passed over the sins of your people. You made a way for them to be covered, but God, today we rejoice because not only do you cover our sins, you go much further than that. You separate them as far as the east is from the west. And Lord, not only do you separate them, but you give us your righteousness. God, may that encourage and strengthen us in our faith. May it draw us closer to you, knowing that we have a God who pursued us, who made a way when there was no other way. We pray in the precious and holy name of Jesus.